This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Why Am I Eating This? Seven Simple Steps to Retrain Your Mind About Food. And the author is Sandy Robertson, and Sandy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Sandy. Hello, Steve. How are you today? Well, I am hungry. No. (laughs) But you're going to help me control what I eat, and boy, do we need that. Let me read just a few sentences about what you have written about your book. You say this. I just came up with the best system for limiting your food intake and giving your body what it needs. Pay attention to every morsel of food you eat. Have gratitude. Ask yourself, why are you putting food into my mouth right now? And keep saying to yourself, I am eating slowly. I am grateful for every bite of food that I'm eating. Chew. Put my fork down. Stop eating when I'm no longer hungry. It works. Seven simple steps, right? It does. It does work. Try it. It absolutely works, I promise. Tell us about your background, Sandy. I'm a nurse by training. I have a bachelor's in nursing. And right away after graduating, I knew that I was interested in prevention, wellness, health promotion. I actually got a master's in community health nursing, focused on corporate wellness, fitness, and worked in corporations in New York City for about 15 years. And part of that was doing health promotion for the employees. And these were very large companies with sites all over the country. So it involved running groups locally, writing newsletters, doing big, large health promotion campaigns, and just creating this overall awareness of the elements that it takes to have a healthy lifestyle. And I realized that a lot of it has to do with your mind and being actively engaged in this process. It just doesn't happen automatically, magically. You have to think about it and set yourself up, you know, to win in all ways. And you're one that has walked the talk. I have. I have. I was one of those chubby children called Tubbs, I remember, in sixth grade. In high school, it got better, but then going to college, put on a lot of weight. And after college, when I started in the corporate wellness fitness, teaching it and being actively involved in this every day, it became easier when I put all the pieces together, seeing how important it was, as I write in the book, to pay attention and to really, as I say, it's a mind game. But to use your mind, plan ahead, plan strategies, pay attention to everything you're eating, think about, do I really want to be eating this right now? You know, it's called self-talk, part of cognitive restructuring. And it doesn't matter if everyone around you is stuffing their faces. That's the hardest part sometimes. You have to be your own best coach and really literally talk your way through it. No, slow down, pause. I don't need to be eating that right now. Or I'm full. Stop. 
Self-awareness, you talk a lot about this, and of course you've mentioned this is a mind game, so we need to be more, uh, what's the word? We just need to participate more, I guess, in our eating. It's just not sitting there at the table with all this wonderful food, and, and boy, we certainly have amazing amounts of food around us at any given time it says so we've got to get involved in this self-awareness of of what we're doing because most of the time we're not thinking about it we're just enjoying the moment Yes, and, and it's fine to enjoy the moment, but when we eat mindlessly and eat just because it's there or because someone served it to us or because we go to a restaurant and it's there on the table, that's where the problems come in, especially when people are using food as really a drug of choice for mood control. And, you know, they have 12-step programs of Readers Anonymous, and people readily admit they're using food for comfort which we all do, but too much. A lot of people have a real problem with it, and they finally get to acknowledge that they're eating for reasons that have nothing to do with hunger. It's to, to address emotional issues, depression, sadness, anger, not being willing to feel emotions. It's just much easier to eat way too much. And so the paying attention has to do with Yes, we need food. We need fuel. We want to enjoy food. But there comes a point where you're going past that point of I have enough nutrients for my body, and people don't know how to stop, and that's where the problems come in. And then they wonder why they can't lose weight. It's because they've not fostered and practiced that ability to stop. And as you put it, uh, they're really stuffing the emotion and ex instead of expressing the emotion. And so we get caught up in this vicious cycle. Absolutely. And not having alternate, healthier channels for stress. You know, we all have stress. We all have stuff going on in our life. But when we turn to the bag of potato chips or candy to solve that versus going for a walk, taking a breath, meditating, calling a friend, having a hobby, going out in nature, you know, looking at the sky. Again, that's where the problems come in. And I write about that the statistics in this country that, you know, we're headed to one-third of people being obese. Obesity now affects 60, 60 million people. And it's, so it's not about people not knowing what they should eat and not eat. It's, it's the basic premise of my book is that people are overeating for reasons that have nothing to do with hunger. And if they stop and ask themselves, why am I eating this? You know, and it could be with humor. Why am I really choosing to, to put food in my mouth right now? Or with humor, you know, do I really want to be eating that right now? How will I feel if I keep eating? How will I feel if I eat three chocolate bars or a bag of Oreos? So the self-talk and the self-questioning, and again, it can be with humor, back to being your own best coach, can really help each person to walk themselves through the, okay, let's just take a moment here. And, and what does that, what that does is disengage the impulse to just eat, to eat mindlessly, to eat impulsively, compulsively, once again, for reasons that have nothing to do with hunger. Talk a little bit more about this self-talk. Uh, obviously, we all face frustration in life, stress, and 
you compare or 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 there's a negative self-talk versus positive self-talk. Help us with that. Well, self-talk is a brand of it's called cognitive restructuring in psychology. Actually, self-talk is an element of cognitive restructuring, where psychologists look at, you know, when things go wrong during the day, what's the first thing that you say to yourself? And we're all talking to ourselves all the time from the moment we wake up in the morning. And so part of this brand of psychology is just noticing from a neutral place when things go wrong, what do you say to yourself right away? Is it, oh, no, here we go again. This always happens to me. I'm a bad person. I'm a failure. I can't do anything right and start this downward spiral and thoughts affect feelings and emotions affect actions or are you someone who when things go wrong you say no problem I can handle this I'm going to get a hold on this I can do it no problem and you take a deep breath maybe get up walk around why this is important is that what you're saying to yourself all the time is affecting how you feel and your emotions that is a direct impact on your actions. So if you're essentially beating yourself up when things go wrong and have a sense of helplessness and hopelessness, you walk into the kitchen, it's, well, who cares? I might as well just eat a gallon of ice cream. Who cares? So the self-talk is a very powerful way to redirect yourself to a more positive way to look at things, to reframe it, and that will guide you to a healthier feeling in that moment, and that will guide you to a healthier action, which will give you a sense of mastery and confidence over the situation. Why is it so important to be grateful for all this food? What, what, what does, how does that help us change our mindset? Gratitude is very powerful. It puts you into that mode of appreciation and that things are good, that I am blessed. And a lot of people who overeat, while they're eating, at the same time they're thinking, I want more or this isn't enough. You know, cravings can kick in. You can only be holding one thought in your mind at a time. So if you are deliberately thinking, I'm grateful for this food, this is enough, I do an exercise in my classes, the, the cranberry exercise. People also do it with raisins where you eat very, very slowly a cranberry, savoring it, chewing it, tasting it, really appreciating this cranberry. And at the end of it, you can last five minutes, I ask people how they feel. And interestingly, people say, I feel fulfilled. And I say, well, do you want to eat more? And many say not necessarily because they have brought this element of fulfillment to the eating of one cranberry and that brings home the point to them that when they're putting their attention on fulfillment, gratitude, appreciation, miraculously that really fills them up in a way. So they don't need to be really mind, body, spirit not just physically. They don't need to then have their attention on, I want more, I want more. Instead, they fill themselves with the thought and the emotion of, I have plenty, this is enough, I am thankful. 
Of course, we're bombarded with advertising. Uh, we go to restaurants, and there's always these huge portions. Most of the time, it's it's much more than we really need. And it seems like we're just conditioned. And, and of course, you talk about these food patterns, and, you know, you've been uh, mentioning our eating history. It's But it's, it's something we can break, can't we? We can push away from the table. We can say, bring me a, a, a doggy bag. I'm going to take this home. Yes, you can learn new ways. And as you say, recondition yourself. It's the knowledge of what is the right amount of food to be eating. What does a healthy plate look like? A healthy plate has three or four ounces of protein, which is about the size of a deck of cards or computer mouse. Vegetable, salad, a small, you know, half a cup of rice or potatoes. And when you get that mental mindset of what a healthy plate looks like, and then you go to a restaurant, you have that gauge to say, this is three or four times the amount of food that that I need, and yes, please, I want to take it home, even if it means right from the beginning, say, can I please have a to-go container from the minute you get the food? It's back to that self-awareness and paying attention, realizing it's way too much fuel for your body. Your body doesn't need that much, despite what the marketers would have us believe. Now, at the end of every chapter, you have a meditation page. Yes. Back to the power of the mind, the mind, body, spirit, and meditation or prayer, whatever you want to call it, really quieting the mind to quiet the body. is a powerful tool since so much of mindless eating is driven by our, our emotions, perhaps being upset, depressed, angry, and again, anything you can do to quiet the mind, to quiet the body, will help you gain control and gain mastery in the moment that you're eating. So you don't have to call it meditation. It could be taking just a few breaths. And really, as you're eating, you can say to yourself, pause, slow down, put your utensils down, take a breath. But the, the meditations are a tool to help people see and feel, experience, that there's a different way to approach food. Bring all of your senses in a quiet, relaxed, appreciative mode. Again, slowing things down, taking away the, the impulses to just eat, and realizing that this appreciation can help you determine in a much more deliberate way the amount of food you're eating and be satisfied. So you're bringing more to the eating experience than just it's time to eat, chow down, eat, done. When people realize they can engage their mind, body, and spirit in the eating process, it really becomes a gift that they're bringing to the process of eating, a whole new set of tools, a way to enjoy eating and not feel deprived, instead to feel grateful and to feel filled up with all the senses that they're bringing to the experience. The title of the book, Why Am I Eating This? Seven Simple Steps to Retrain Your Mind About Food. It has seven chapters with everything from self-awareness, pay attention, uh, uncover the mystery of your eating history, self-talk, gratitude, eating light and right for you, and then... The new blueprint, the new blueprint, and a new you, right? 
Absolutely. A new you. Well, Sandy, tell us how to get your book. You can get my book, Why Am I Eating This, on whyameateingthis.com or through Amazon or through iUniverse. But whyameateingthis.com is probably the easiest way, direct to the website. Well, thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. I'm going off to eat, and I'm a changed person. I really think I'm a, I'm, it's, it's, uh, I'm not sure I really like this. <laughs> well, thank you, Steve. Just remember to breathe ah, and keep breathe. enjoying it. Yes, well, Just I agree. We, we love food, and you are so right. We have got to think about what we're doing, and I'm sure we have a healthier better life. So thanks again for being with us. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. That was Sandy Robertson. She is the author of her book, Why Am I Eating This? Seven Simple Steps to Retrain Your Mind About Food. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teach us how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Muscle Bound, and the author, David Marlowe. And David joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hello, how are you, Steve? Good to have you with us. Now, let me read what you have written as an introduction for everyone so they can understand the general theme of the book. You say this, Muscle Bound explores gay relationships among bodybuilders who are obsessed with building muscle and getting into the best shape possible. You also say it explores the psyche 
of the romosexual and shows the lengths to which men will go to become muscular and therefore attractive to other gay bodybuilders. Well, David, why have you written this book? What was the motivation? Well, I wanted to explore a certain segment of the gay population in two aspects. One is the, uh, in, with all the gay lip that's out there, there doesn't seem, there didn't seem to be anyone addressing the uh, subject of muscle obsession and gym addiction and steroid abuse and these various um, other aspects that have to do with physical attraction and body image. And you know, while I also wanted to explore what I call the homosexual agenda. And homosexual, although it sounds like homosexual, is spelled R-O-A-M. And it's a play on words, obviously. And what it's talking about is gay men who roam, literally, from relationship to relationship to relationship. And uh, it's, what, I, what I realize and what I've written about is that I think it is something that is kind of inherent in the male DNA, in the makeup of, of the male. Now, this takes, back, takes us back to... Uh, my original thesis, thesis, which is that we have a major cultural myth in America, and the myth is essentially this, that when we're, when we're young, we are told that we're going to grow up, fall in love with the most wonderful person in the world, and probably get married and live happily ever after. The myth that comes in there is that they don't tell the second part of it, which is that for uh, this is just a guess, a, a guesstimate on my part, but I would say between 80, 85, 90, perhaps 95% of couples, sex life between the two of them and physical attraction between the two of them becomes routine somewhere after two days, two weeks, two months, or two years after they get together. Now, when you have a male and female situation, like 90%, we can assume, of, of relationships are, by the time that that routine sets in, People are usually kept in a codependency based on mortgages, children, the car, their jobs, whatever it might be. When you have two men who are together in a gay relationship, they, that once the sex becomes routine, then there is, there, is either no, there is no reason to stay together anymore unless they stay together possibly as companions or roommates, which is a very common and prevalent uh, condition in the gay community. So in your book, you explore your thesis through three different main characters. Uh, let's first talk about Chase Hyde. Okay, well, Chase Hyde is the uh, proponent of, of the, the, the piece and, in, in a sense, the anti-hero because uh, he is the, almost the founder of the homosexual club. It is his particular desire to not want to settle down, but he understands that what that, that, that the essence of man is to want to roam. In the same way, a bull never, never has sex with the same cow twice, um, and, and the way lions like to go from pride to pride, have eaten sex with every female before moving on to the next pride, so too, I believe, men are wired to go from relationship to relationship to relationship and not really settling down. What you have essentially is, I mean, the big joke between uh, about gays and lesbians is, I mean, gay men and lesbians, they say, what do lesbians bring to a second date? And the answer is a U-Haul truck, because women are nesters, and when lesbians get together, they often settle down very quickly and last for a long, long time, maybe even forever, because they are by, by uh, inherently and by nature nesters. The, answer, the second part of that joke is, what do gay men bring to a second date? And the answer is, what second date? <laughs> now, I also thought that this was perhaps just a gay thing. But then I re remember back, flashback to high school, and I remember a, a big locker room joke in high school. What is the definition of eternity? 
Eternity is the time it takes for him to come and her to leave. So it is, it is a male thing. And uh, men trained by, by, by female back when they decided that marriage was an institution that kept families together, kept disease from running rampant, and that's why it was established. But in the gay world, you don't have the same rules applying. Now let's talk about who you call the hopeless romantic Hunter Rowe. Yes, Hunter Rowe is is kind of the anti- the opposite of what of what Chase is. While Chase is determined to just sleep with as many attractive men as he can in in, in his sexual lifetime, Hunter has this romantic vision of finding the one true love of his, of his life and settling down forever. And what and what he does is he works very hard once he meets Chase Chase Hyde to foment this relationship, to make it grow, to make it prosper, and to make it succeed. However, what you find in the, in the, in the, in the second act of the book is uh, he finally wins Chase over, and Chase finally actually decides and says to himself, you know what, I really love this guy. Maybe monogamy is such, not such a bad gig. Maybe it can be done after all. And what happened then is you get what Stephen Sondheim in his clever lyrics said, I've got those... Gee, why don't you love me? Oh, you do. I'll see you later. Blues. And so Hunter actually disengages from Chase when he realizes that he can have him. Because I guess having him is not what he really wanted after all. Now, And he's just another homosexual out there on the market. Now, we have another main character, Kristen Falconer. Now, he has a real conflict because of religion. That is correct. Christian Falconer is, was brought up in kind of with a, a fundamentalist background, with a, a deeply religious mother and, uh, and a very stern father. And I wanted to, uh, to offer what is for many men a very, very difficult time in coming out. I mean, I think everyone can, can understand and empathize with the, the difficulty that men have in, uh, or women that have in coming to, to terms with their gayness because it is so different from what everyone else is feeling or supposed to be feeling and doing. Uh, in fact, there's this rash we've been having of, of teenage suicides that have been in the, in the news over the, over the last few months because of uh, people uh, discovering their homosexuality or whatever it is and killing themselves over it. Um, just, just put the spotlight on the problem. Now, we have another uh, news kind of tie to all of this, and with this obsession of just looking the best, many uh, gay bodybuilders get heavily involved with steroids? Well, yes, uh, they do. I mean, that, that is a gay and straight thing, I and mean, the, the, uh, straight men do it as well. But the, the interesting thing about that is that, uh, you know, I'm always curious uh, that one of the, what Chase Hyde says in the book about bodybuilders, because when it comes to bodybuilders, he felt that all men are either gay or Jews. And by that, what I mean is you speak to a, a gay bodybuilder who said that he is doing it, he is getting into the best shape because he wants to attract women. Now, that is something of a fallacy in the sense that, sure, I think women very often like uh, men who are who who are well developed and in good shape. I don't think they like the hyper super muscles, especially the, the big uh, muscle monsters that that are created from steroids. But they do they can appreciate a a, a well built body. The reality though is that they they it is a priority that is way down on their list after security, intelligence, sense of humor, uh, you know, the ability, compassion, empathy, all these other things that 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 that, that women look for in men. Whereas men, on the other hand. Uh, the physical thing is for, for both straight and gay men. The physical attraction thing is way up there at the top. You know, pretty pretty, pretty close to the top. Almost, but nothing else supersedes it. 
men are more shallow than women because they're looking for its physical attributes first, and every and then if the rest of the package comes along, then then they're happy about it. Where for women, they are interested in 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 other aspects about a man. Now, you believe that uh, other gay books have uh, really not touched on muscle muscle obsession, gym addiction, or this steroid abuse. Uh, that makes you your book really different from uh, the rest. Yes, I think it make, does make it stand out. They get gay books about men in great shape and so on, but they're not talking about this. It kind of has as its as its background the the entire um, muscle obsession thing, the the building of it, the maintaining of it, and the looking toward another man. You make this statement: uh, intimate relationships are hard and require a lot of work and sacrifice. So it's that seems to be kind of flying in the face of uh, what homosexuals are trying to achieve well i couldn't agree with you more. i think that 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 is what it is that uh, i what it, the cliche is <laughs> the essence of relationship and i think that is quite true and i think relationships take a lot of uh, a lot of effort a lot of patience and a a lot of understanding i think you know back to when we're, when we're growing up and we're being taught what's going on and everything, no one really gives us a, a map or outline of, of, of what to expect. And I think that's true in both straight and gay circles. However, in gay circles, it's even less so because what, what you're, all you're told really is that it's the worst thing in the world. Ten-year-old boys are uh, fooling around in the playground when they talk about things. The worst thing they can call one another, say, oh, that's so faggy, or they call the faggot is like the worst thing in the world. And and even if someone's sexuality, you know, is not in question, it's just a pejorative uh, that is there. And that's why a character like Christian Falconer, who has won his, his Christian guilt because of his, his uh, what the what the far right in the country ha- have given and the religious right in the country have given homosexuals to place that guilt on them. And then just becoming to terms with with your sexuality and your true essence in, uh, in general makes it very difficult for people. Do one of these characters... Uh fit david marlowe well you know what uh, i've written five novels now and i'd have to say that in every one of my books are at least part autobiographical and that you even when you create characters or take uh look at you know say a friend or, or an acquaintance or someone you know and you take aspects of their personality or aspects from several people's personalities and put them together into one character there is always a great deal of view that you put in all your characters whether male female straight or gay young or old so i think yes part part of that is uh it's safe to say is, is uh, you know it, it comes from myself what was one of the uh, greatest challenges in writing this book why well, did just just you know i think what i've done is i've been very fortunate because I'm, you know, I hear about people staring at the, a, a blank white page, and I've never had that. I've never had what they call writer's block. The muse has been with me every time I sat down to write. And what I do is, uh, my my work habit is, is always the same. I, I take get up, I make breakfast, I bring it to the computer, I read the the, the day before the, the writing I did the day before, and then I go on and I forge ahead and do the, uh, the next four pages at least. You know, I make set set a minimum minimum for myself, and I continue on and on. And then once I have a beginning, middle, and end, that is, uh, or you know, what is essentially a rough draft. That is my favorite uh, part and the favorite point because at that point, then you start going back and forth and start um, rewriting and, and and putting it all together and making it all jive. And talking about uh, men, uh, homosexual men, who are really attracted to uh, muscle, uh, but you say few of them really do anything about it. 
Yeah, I think that is true. I think that a lot of men, I mean, if you, it's interesting. There's a, a feeling in our society, I think, that, that if you, you see men who are in great shape and after a certain age, like men over 35, 40, 50, if they're still in great shape, skin, they can often come with a suspicion that they may be gay because why else would they be doing it? And so it's, uh, you know, it's, that, that, that is what I kind of address in the book. David, what are some of your closing thoughts? Well, just that it's, um, I wanted to present a situation that is out there and hasn't been explored yet in this, uh, this thing about the homosexual who essentially goes from man to man to man to man and wanted to write about a particular man who part of the dichotomy with men is that there is, especially if you see it online, you see uh, people trying to connect and what they're saying in their profiles is looking for an LTR, looking for a long-term relationship. But for them, the long-term relationship often doesn't last much past 30 seconds past orgasm. And I wanted to explore that because what they're saying is, although they think that's what they want because that's what society has told them that what they want, what they really want is to be able to enjoy the adventure of the next uh the next romance the next mini romance the next conquest the next sexual uh tension do you have a website i do have a website it's www.davidmarlow.com and that's m-a-r-w and uh you can order my books from there or from the iUniverse website or from Barnes and nobles or amazon.com or any of them well, David, we really appreciate you being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, it's been my pleasure. I thank you for the interview. That was David Marlowe. He is the author of his book, Musclebound. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriended Principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. 
Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Homecoming, and the author is Sue Ann Bowling. And Sue Ann joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Sue Ann. Hello. Well, good to have you with us. Uh, let me read some that you have written about the book Homecoming. This is what you say. This is a science fiction novel, but it is about people, even though they aren't all human. It is also a coming-of-age story, though probably unlike any you've read before. In some ways, the topic itself is unusual. One reviewer commented that just as you think you see shades of Oliver Twist or Harry Potter, you realize that this is something quite different. Another is the way the three separate stories come together. It's hard to talk about it without spoilers, and it's unusual to have a protagonist so handicapped, yet with such unusual intelligence and abilities. Well, a complex story, but a science fiction thriller, an epic kind of uh, treatment. Why did you write the book, Sue Ann? Well, the book has been slowly coming into my head for about 30 years, and I started writing it down about 16 years ago. Decided to start with Roy's youth, and uh, this is what eventually came out of it. Well, you have quite a science background yourself, Dr. Bolin. Tell us about some of your background that kind of lent itself to helping you formalize uh, this very complicated science fiction story. Well, I majored in physics and was actually in the physics department at the University of Alaska as a faculty member for almost 30 years. Had to retire a bit early because of uh, uh, diabetes and vision problems. But I actually started writing Homecoming while I was still on the faculty. Also, I've been very interested since junior high school in genetics, uh, which also plays a part in Homecoming in that the main character, Roy, is suffering from a genetic problem that he does not affect him but could affect any children he has. Well, let's talk about the... The characters, and in getting to know the characters, we'll start to understand the some of the themes of the story. Now, let's talk about Lie. Tell us about Lie. He's the only one of the purebred real Nye. Now, tell us about real Nye. I am assuming that the human race, both ours and the one that I talk about in this story, were actually produced by a hybridization of a Rillian named Yarn, who was stranded on Earth during the last interglacial and interbred with the proto-humans, but very early humans that he found there. And their descendants, some of them stayed on Earth and eventually became us, but some of them followed him back to the stars where they colonized a large group of stars, probably several hundred light years across, which eventually became the Confederation. They had some problems there. There was another race, not in an inimical race, but just not compatible with humans. They go through a stage in their reproduction when the nervous system and the body are separate, and the nervous system is capable of infecting humans, though not the real nine. But the real nine could detect infected humans and treat them, 
And uh, basically, the humans came to rely on the Rilians to do this. And also to prevent the human planets from making war on each other. Uh, some 10,000 years ago, an epidemic struck the Rilni, which killed many of them off. They found a cure with the aid of the humans, but they simply weren't enough of them to keep up their guardianship. So they began rehybridizing with their human part descendants, and this produced the Rilnoids. Uh, which, who are now doing the job of keeping the human planets from warring on each other, kind of a interstellar United Nations, if you like, and also protecting them from the moths. Well, so they are essential for the survival of the human race, but they are not really ruling it because the individual human planets have, com have complete freedom in their own, on their own planets. But this, the Rilni handle strictly the relationships between planets and between the humans and the monks. Well, tell us about Lai. He is a survivor. He's the last survivor. The last survivor. But he right. still feels... The Rilni have been slowly dying off ever since the plague. And but... he is the last survivor of a species that is going extinct. But he still feels bound to his race's responsibility to the Confederation. Now, why is that? Human beings would never have reached the stars on their own without the help of his predecessor. In fact, there is kind of an agreement among the races of the galaxy that no race is to be allowed to have anything to do with various interstellar races until they have achieved star flight on their own. The assumption is that any race that can survive to produce star flight is not going to be a warlike race. Now, does he have some uh, powers? He has some mental powers, which we would refer to as a telepathy, telekinesis, levitation, and many of the Rilnoids also have this power. Also, they, they don't age. They're not immortal by any means. They can be killed. But they do not die of old age. Now tell us about Snowy. Snowy is a slave boy. He has some rather odd talents, but he doesn't understand. All he knows is that his mother told him he'd be killed if anyone ever found out about them. One of these is that he feels the emotions of anyone near him or anyone at any distance that he knows closely and is a you know, good close friend with. And for a slave, this can be very upsetting. It's not necessarily a positive ability. He also has an ability to heal broken bones and things like this, which is very useful for a slave. And there's Marna. Marna is also Rillian, but she is from a completely different group. Um, in fact, before Yarn's time, a couple of hundred thousand years ago, um, her group settled a totally different planet, Rhea, which is well outside the boundaries of the Confederation and completely unknown to it. But there has been an epidemic on that planet, some disease that was just totally novel to them, and basically wiped out the entire population of the planet. Barna survived, 
and it's been about 200 years now, solely because she was on an isolation satellite studying a different disease. She's a healer by training, but the, um, the life support system of the satellite gave out, and she was forced to return to Rhea, fully expecting to die very quickly, and she didn't. So she is trying to survive, being the only one of her species yet alive. Physically, it's no problem. The planet was basically run by robots, and they're still working. And In fact, very, very happy. If robots can be happy, they seem to be happy to have her back, back to give them orders. But uh, she's frantically trying to keep herself distracted. Now, the only way that the Confederation and and humanity can survive is if they learn to work together. Now, this is part of the plot. Right. Basically, Lyle discovers the existence of other real lives and goes hunting for them and is able to save Marna. Now, there's some, pro- there's some problems in that they... She doesn't want to go back with him. He doesn't want to stay with her, and so on. But they do wind up. And the common thing about it, this might be a spoiler, but they they eventually all three of them come together. Now tell us about this genetics board. The assumption is that I'm developing a society which is rather different from ours in some ways. And one is that the genetics are the primary concern in having children. Um, basically, the genetics board has to approve any mating which involves a realnoid or, or the pure realnian. And in fact, they will sometimes require matings where the individuals involved would just as soon not. Sue Ann, you have a specific philosophy that helped you to create this theme in your book. Tell us about that. One of my favorite authors is Mercedes Lackey, and I'd like to quote a bit from her because I think she's kind of got it in a nutshell for storytelling. Make your audience identify with and care deeply for a character and then drop a mountain on him. Well, that has actually been the philosophy of good storytellers back to at least Homer. And that's what I've tried to follow in making uh, all of my characters very real, very much person, though they're not all human, and faced with problems, most of them mental, so to speak, rather than physical, but some physical problems, too. Now, one of the themes in your book deals with fundamentalism, extremism, uh, that you say is in any religion. Well, I'm saying it is a possibility in any religion. Um, Let me see if I can find a bit, if I just marked it. (laughs) Probably didn't. Um, But basically, there is a point at which... I believe shades into I know, which is fine, but then I know shades into anybody who doesn't believe exactly as I what I know to be true is a devil or even inspired by one, and it deserves to die. And that is the point that you really have to be careful you don't step over. 
You say that one of the most controversial aspects of your book, the message of your book, is family relationships. Right. Basically, I have not used a standard two-person children family because it wouldn't work with two species like the humans and the real nuts. Basically, you've got one species which is extremely long-lived. The Ronian women are only capable of having a child about once every hundred years. Among other things, that means that for, for the Ronai, it was automatic that it took about 50 years for a child to reach the point where he was able to, pick, to be completely mature. But by that time, Generally, the, the individuals who are, whose parents would have separated, and in fact, it was considered immoral among the real not for a woman to have more than one child by the same man. And you've got the situation in humans where you normally have several children who are immature and needing aid at the same time. They frequently need aid from both parents so that the two parents have to stay together to raise the children. What I've used is a kind of a combination of those two that basically the genetics board is responsible, among other things, for making sure that every real crossbred child has a secure, loving home, but not necessarily with the genetic parents. The title of the book is Homecoming, and the author is Sue Ann Bowling. Sue Ann, tell us how to get your book. Well, the first thing to do is to go to my website, which is www.sueannbowling, and that's bowling spelled as in bowling alley. And from that, you can actually reach a number of other websites, including my Facebook page, um, my professional page back when I was working at the Geophysical Institute, um, some genetics articles that I have up on the web, so on. And it's got a page on the site on how to get the book for Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or iUniverse. I try not to mail it too much from here simply because I live in Alaska. And mailing anything from Alaska is a pain in the neck. <laughs> well, Sue Ann, we appreciate you being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, I appreciate the chance to talk to you. That was Sue Ann Bowling. She is the author of her book, Homecoming. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.